this episode, we will be talking about phobias. And I've been talking about this. How long have I been talking about doing this episode for? Um, at least six months. <laughs> and I think that my my vision for it was something a lot different. But as I kind of was going through it, um, I realized that my vision was me just reading a list of different <laughs> definitions of phobias. So I really had to flesh it out. So I, I kind of like what it became, but that was really what I was thinking of doing, like in my mind. I don't know. So, oh boy. So um, to begin, I was wondering what do you, what if any phobias do you have? Um, I don't know if this counts as a phobia per se, but I am like deathly afraid of snakes. And have been ever since I was, like, I feel like growing up in the, like, being a young child in the early 90s, there were always, like, huge anacondas, like, suffocating and strangling and swallowing humans in, like, all these movies. So I was convinced there were, like, huge snakes everywhere that were just going to, like, smush me to death. Um... And to this day, I, I would get very freaked out if I, like, saw a snake unexpectedly. I would probably scream and run away. Oh, and for a while, I had this really weird fear of, <laughs> of sitting on the toilet and a snake coming out and, like, attempting <laughs> or succeeding and, like, slithering up my vagina. <laughs> so... I forget what comedian. I I uh, I want to say John Mulaney, but I'm not. I don't think it's John Mulaney. Um, I'll figure it out. But he said, you know, when I was a kid, I thought things would be a lot bigger deals than they actually are. Like quicksand. I thought <laughs> yes, that would be a regular exactly. thing I ran into. <laughs> um, yeah, snakes is definitely a phobia. It's actually the number one most common animal phobia and depending on what sources some say that actually is the most common phobia overall mm-hmm. so um so after kind of reading about phobias i i kind of think that i have two i don't think one of mine is a phobia um so the first is i'm, I'm like petrified of crabs like not like pubic lice although that is oh if you're not afraid of that then you 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 should be so i've heard <laughs> um but like crustaceans i guess i should say lobsters shrimp crabs anything like i'm not afraid of spiders or ticks like land bugs but like mm-hmm. sea bugs no no and what if you see them like dead in a restaurant mm-mm. No, I like can't, I can't touch it. I, I like can't look at it, especially if it's like upside down. Like I can't, I can't. What freaks you out about them specifically? I need to know. Probably the shape. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. They don't seem very nice, but I don't think that's a reason to fear something. But I think it's like the what they look like. But I'll avoid going in the ocean. I have like a one and done rule. If I go in the water for like a, like the first time that season and like my foot touches something that I perceive to be a lobster or crab, I won't go in for the rest of the of the summer. I'm, I'm, I like this because I don't really get it. And that's, that's more the point. fun to me, you know, 
Like I was circling back and then I will let you tell me about the second phobia. I was thinking about the snake one and how it seems to be common amongst me and others. And I thought of another reasoning for it. If you grew up like super religious, at least like conservative Christian, you're told like, you know, in the Garden of Eden, Satan took on the form of like a serpent. And then you're told that uh, serpents used to have like legs, but then they were forced to like slither on their bellies as eternal punishment. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into at least that one specifically. There's so many explanations for why people could develop a snake phobia. I that's really interesting. Um, I, I really I I get that. I think that that's that makes a lot of sense. But mm-hmm. also the other one is um, is they it's thought to be evolutionary. So they think that it roots in survival mechanisms, like are we're somehow wired because they can be poisonous and that can be mm. deadly. Um, so that's you know, I, all of it, you know, kind of makes, yeah. makes a lot of sense. So my second pseudophobia um, is, I, I'm, I never know how to pronounce this, but it's a tripophobia or tripophobia. I don't know. It's fear of like dots in like a specific, like a honeycomb or like some flowers, like how they have like the, I don't know. Oh my God, um, yours are so weird. <laughs> thank you. Well, what, what would you expect? <laughs> but the reason I don't think this is a phobia, and it's common, you can look it up. It's like, it's terrifying. <laughs> um, the reason I don't think this is a phobia is because I, I'm not afraid of it. But what happens when I see something in this shape, and it can also be like a rash. And I think that's where it comes from is it's meant to make us uncomfortable because it could um, signify diseased skin in somebody. So it, you know, um, I get this like itching, tingling sensation only on the right side of my face to the point where like I'll start itching my face. Um, Oh my God. It happens every time without fail whenever I see this particular pattern. And the reason I don't think it's a phobia is because I'll like kind of seek it out. Like I'll like Google, like, you know, I go down my rabbit holes at like 2 a.m. And I'll like, I just to see if like it'll still happen and I don't avoid it. And I'm not like afraid of it, but it's just a reaction, which from what I've read is technically not the definition of a phobia. Um. A phobia is more of like, you know, an overwhelming, uncontrollable, no, you know it's a rational response to something that does not pose any any real danger. And people will go to great lengths to avoid it. So that's like kind you of... you with lobsters. Yes, exactly. So that's why <laughs> I think that that's more of a phobia. And I'll get in, I have like two more pseudophobias that I thought about. I'll talk about okay. in, a, in a little bit. So... Um, what, hmm. what do you think the most common phobia in America is according to the Washington Post in 2014? And so it's not snakes because we established that was just for animals. I would say heights. Heights was number two. The most common was actually public speaking. Oh, I forgot that Which... one counted. And, and this is what I wanted to ask you. Why wouldn't you count it? 
It's probably the same reason I wouldn't count it. Because I think it's incredibly natural. And I think that um, for something to be a phobia, I would have to say that it's like unnatural and it's generally a fear of something like some type of permeable object rather than like this thing you do like right so just one i one i'm gonna go back and say my first reason is i think it's very natural and i think that almost everybody has to if they're gonna be a public speaker overcome a fear of it to some extent and then two because it's it's like a, a thing you do that's not objective like snakes lobsters weird dot formations flying hmm. on a plane these are all like there is something you are scared of <laughs> so i thought you were going to say because it's it's like more of an anxiety disorder which if you look at the like chemical basis of phobias it's kind of on the same spectrum yeah i mean definitely that too but that goes back to you know it being like public speaking it's not like an object it's not like an objective thing it's like something you do right so when things are fears in that regard yeah they're usually more on like the anxiety disorder spectrum versus like a phobia tends to have to do with objective things so you you're referring to specific phobias which are specific to objects um or or situations versus complex phobias which are um more related to social situations like um public speaking meeting new people and agoraphobia so um they actually consider both to be phobias just based on the reaction and the behavior surrounding it. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I thought that was, I thought public speaking was a cheap, um, <laughs> was cheap. So anyways, like, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Heights was 19 and clowns was uh, 7.5%, which I thought was underreported. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't specifically have a phobia of clowns, but if like someone dressed as a clown came up to me and was trying to interact with me in any way, I would definitely like run the other direction. I think that's a completely normal response. As you should, um, (laughs) as an adult, if a clown (laughs) tries to speak to you. Yeah. And I also think that the media and movies and, and Stephen King and things like that also kind of shaped our generation and and poor clowns american horror story yeah just, all the ugh. things that i've watched not to mention yeah. creepy ronald mcdonald yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> do you remember did you ever have the um it's like a statue that you could pose with where he's like sitting on the bench like with his arm yes. out and you <laughs> like that is what i'm referencing was it a rite of passage to like defame that statue some way and take like a <laughs> like a bad picture? I think in my teens, yes. I think yeah. when I was a child, I was just like, this is mildly creepy, but like okay. <laughs> okay, so um that's that. So now for the, you know, 
neurobiology of this, um, it's essentially just a dysfunction in the fear circuitry in the brain. And it's not, it's similar to PTSD in that, in that sense. Um, and I got all of this from, uh, it's called the Neurobiology of Fear and Specific Phobias uh, by Renee Garcia in Learning and Memory. It's great. It talks about human animal models. I, it's, it's really interesting. So essentially, um, there's two schools of thought. The first is that phobias um, stems from an exaggerated uh, activation of the amygdala, which will then lower the threshold um, for future encounters. So if you use the fear of the dark, which is common in childhood and, you know, not considered a phobia, um, you know, if that just never kind of settles down, then, you know, you have now a phobia of the dark. And then the second, uh, part to it is a lack of habituation and habituation is essentially, um, decremental emotional response, uh, to presented stimuli, um, and this is really to just protect the brain from flooding of, um, you know, just constant sensory uh, input and just to focus on what's normal um, or what's what's going on in that in that situation. So, um, you know, if you can't ignore the fact that there's, you know, a snake sitting next to you or a lobster on a plate, um, you know, that you can't that that lack of habituation is is what's going on so um so let's say you have an experience um that leads to the acquisition of a phobia that experience causing this fear is classical conditioning and then the maintenance meaning every time that you encounter it you have a reaction um is operant uh, operant conditioning, and that kind of reinforces the fear. Um, however, if you experience this, you know, potentially terrifying thing and nothing happens, no harm comes to you, then over time that leads to habituation, which would lead to not having a phobia. So, um, and essentially the maintenance um, or the operant conditioning is what reinforces the avoidance behavior of that stimuli situation snake and um this was largely done um with animals but what's always been really interesting to me is they found in humans with obviously this is not experimental this is post-mortem um or in a case study uh people with bilateral amygdala lesions or atrophy to the amygdala amygdalas amygdalae um they have decreased ability to recognize fear in other people's faces. So it's kind of a very socially, um, you know, important structure. So, um, so that's essentially, you know, the basics and then getting into like the chemicals. Um, so you have your amygdala and for those who, you know, it's not their favorite structure like it is mine. Um, <laughs> it's essentially, it motivates fear. Um, some drives, I think, like ex ex excitation, uh, anger, kind of a lot. It's very heavily emotional, um, social, evolutionary structure. So at rest, the amygdala is inhibited by, uh, by GABA, the neurotransmitter. And this kind of lowers the basal rate of 
what's of activity in the amygdala. So, <clears throat> so essentially, you know, if you want to cause increased activity, increased fear response, what you need is kind of like a double negative. You need to cancel out the GABA, which then cancels the amygdala. So it kind of takes the brakes off and then you get like an, an increased firing in the amygdala. So what's interesting is uh, dopamine um, actually has an inhibitory effect on the GABA, which then uninhibits the amygdala. <clears throat> so when they, they did this study um, with predator odor, um, so I guess like if you have mice and rats, you use cat urine and um, the smell of the cat urine increased dopa, dopamine metabolism in the amygdala. So that's kind of, you know, why they had this reaction. And if you administer um, riboxetine, which is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, you actually um, increase levels of um, norepinephrine and you increase the uh, basal, I'm sorry, this was actually in humans. You increase the response to fearful faces. Do you know what riboxetine is? It's probably just experimentally used. Um, you know, I haven't really heard of it, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think I it's, don't know. it's, these are all experimental. <clears throat> uh, I mean, it has know. the same ending as all the SSRIs do so i would imagine it's related to them yeah um but you know my favorite neurotransmitter is uh serotonin and that also plays a role um it actually inhibits the fear uh circuits in the amygdala through um activation of the gaba so it kind of increases the inhibition so um what's your what's your favorite neurotransmitter <laughs> Um, dopamine. Dopamine's a good one. Dopamine is a good one. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know, it, it doesn't, it just creates good things. It doesn't have, you know, a lot of the negative side effects that the other ones do. So I'm sticking yeah. with dopamine. All right. I like it. Um, so the, so in public speaking, um, and a lot of anxiety disorders, this is one of my favorite medications, propranolol. Um, it works by blocking the action of epinephrine and norepinephrine, and this in turn reduces um, the, the, the activity in the amygdala. So that's used for things like um, public speaking and anxiety. <clears throat> I like it for headaches. Um, it's eh for blood pressure. It's good for tremor. Um, not sponsored by propranolol, um, but I just really, <laughs> I like it. Um, you know, you like, uh, Wellbutrin. I like propranolol. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do love Wellbutrin. I do have to say though, they're like a lot of pharmacists say that propranolol, it's like, so if someone's just on propanolol for like, you know, their fear of public speaking or their anxiety or whatever, cool, cool. But it actually inhibits a lot of other psychotropic medications. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't ask well, me about the, why this occurs right now, because I don't remember offhand. 
but it's a thing. It like CYP. Oh, I was reading in my favorite Facebook group, Psychiatry Network, which any psych residents or attendees can join. Someone was explaining it like in a thread about how like it like if someone's on propanolol and a bunch of other psychotropic meds, it can like inhibit uh, the mechanism of it of actions of other medications. So just something to keep in mind. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's probably why it works in some cases, but, um, yeah, it has its, it has its use. Um, yes, it does. I like it. Okay. So, um, besides there being like specific types of phobias, like to objects or situations, you can also have experiential uh, phobias, which are due to events that happen as a result of a tr- like a trauma, and non-experiential, um, which is not due to an event. I would say, what do you think about your snake phobia? I would say the event was you you had to have seen a movie. I think where yeah. somebody was sitting on the toilet and the snake came up through the toilet. Mm, no, that one just came from my crazy ass mind. Um, but when I was three years old, I specifically, what was the name of the movie? I mean, maybe it was called something like Swiss Family Robinson. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But there was some, I don't know if it was that movie or a movie like it, because I don't really remember these movies because I haven't seen them since the early 90s. But there was like this huge anaconda in like an Amazon river thingy. And it like wraps around the guy and it's like smushing him to death. And I was like three years old and that, and then, like I said, there's a lot of things in other movies from that time period. Also all the biblical teachings that were being smushed into my brain. It was like, you know, a perfect little melting pot for me to develop this at the very least, um, severe fear of snakes it's not as much bad as it was when I was younger but like literally in the dark I always thought I was like seeing snakes when I was a little kid I was like oh my god I would be on like my top bunk bed and I'd be like they're down there on the carpet slithering around <laughs> yeah um and like do you ever get where if you're sitting with your legs like if you're sitting at a table or a desk and your legs are underneath and you can't see your legs. Like, I always feel like, oh, there's things crawling underneath the desk that are going to drop into my lap. That's like another, when I get going, I'm like. Um, oh. No, but thank you for that one. Because yeah. maybe you'll make me develop some more disturbances. <laughs> um, I think that my fear of holes in a specific pattern um actually is also experiential because I think in my past life I was like a medieval healer and I was kind of like this was my power as I would go around and like look at somebody's wound and if it looked like infected I would get like a tingling on the side and that's how I would diagnose like oh my god cellulitis that's what I think um I bet that's true (laughs) we're going with it (laughs) Um, no it makes sense Oh, totally, totally. I was uh, a medieval healer. Okay, so here's what I really wanted to do was uh, tell you all about the different phobias that people can have. But I'm going to do this in a way that's like a little bit of healthy skepticism. So hear me out, okay? These are, they're phobias. People, it's a medical condition. I am not at all, you know, dismissing that. Um. 
you know, it can be debilitating. It requires, you know, changing your lifestyle around. And I get that. But some of these, I just, eh, like, I'm not, I feel like people could be like, oh, I, I have that. I, I have that. And, and you don't. Um, so let's go through them. The first one is plutophobia, which is fear of money, wealth, or wealthy people. And it's so debilitating that some people will sabotage their own careers to not make money. And the, it's thought to maybe stem from a fear of being robbed, which makes sense. You don't want to have something nice and then have it, you know, they don't want to go through the, the tragedy of loss of Honestly, that. that doesn't sound like a phobia. That just sounds like someone who is um, paranoid. Okay, see, this is why we're doing this, because mm-hmm. at first I was like, oh, wow, there's all these phobias, and now I'm like, wait a second. The, the next one, I'm wait, wait, not can even... I, can I give a story for that, of like yeah. why I think that? So shout out to my psycho ex, who has been a reoccurring character that has been discussed <laughs> on prior episodes, but like he was broke, but he would only take under the table jobs that like paid him in cash and he would like hide his cash. I'm not even kidding. And then his sister told me that there were times when he did have jobs that paid him in checks and he never like took them to the bank in time. So he like lost that money. And she told me that he hid like thousands in cash in his youth and just like lost it. Oh my God. I know, but he's super paranoid. He would have like a little cut out of paper on like, you know, all the self-facing cameras. He didn't want. How is your FBI agent supposed to see you then? (laughs) I know, right? He didn't want to restore his driver's license for like the longest time because he wanted to be quote off the grid quote. (laughs) (laughs) okay but anyways there you go i think it's just more of something that um a manifestation of paranoia a a paranoid personality trait at the very least for someone who you know is in that has some of the cluster a traits or personality disorders and i think those individuals you know they also really will speak poorly of like wealthy people and are suspicious of them as well Hmm. Interesting. See, this is why I wanted to do this, because a lot of these can be kind of looked at as either behaviors specific to something else. So the next one is, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, I'm not going to, you know, try to sound like I'm smarter than I am. Because, <laughs> you know. It never so goes well for either of us. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to be on my high horse here trying to pronounce this word like I didn't practice it all day. So this fear is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth, which I'm not sure why that has to have like a Latin name. I I don't. It's like, let's call it what it is. So basically, people are afraid, obviously, of peanut butter sticking to the roof of their mouth, which happens to all of us. Um... And they either avoid peanut butter altogether or eat it in very little bites. Um, What's interesting about this is the kind of thought was, is this really a fear of choking manifesting as have not able to being unable to kind of 
take a breath. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. I don't think this is like if someone only had this fear with specifically peanut butter and there was like it just it's sticking to the roof of their mouth and there was no reason in particular they were afraid of it sticking to the roof of their mouth. I'd be like, this person's just weird. So, and if you're continuing to eat peanut butter, I, I don't exactly think can it really if you're be avoiding a it. Yeah, that's one yeah. thing. If you're like going to insane lengths to avoid peanut butter, then sure, you might have a phobia. But if you're still willing to willing to eat it in small bites, then maybe the person is just like an anxious, worrying type, not necessarily a full blown phobia. So we're also rating this low on our phobia scale. Yeah. We're not impressed. <laughs> no. Um, this one is interesting. Um, I can pronounce this one. So it's optophobia, which is the fear of opening your eyes. And people will either, you know, not do anything that requires having their eyes open or just stay in very dimly lit rooms. And this is usually associated with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, or like a traumatic incident. But see, this is what I think. The dimly lit room thing so makes me think they're cheating. This just seems so histrionic. <laughs> like they're like, I'm just imagining, don't kill me over this. But you know, like a really histrionic patient lying in their hospital bed and they're like, I'm scared to open my eyes. And you know, they have that like whispering tone of voice. I'm sorry. And then I'm like, not sure I buy this either. Like Yes, because I'm picturing I'm I see this patient in my mind's eye and I open their eyelid and what does the eyelid do? They like their eye rolls back. Right? Yes. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And it's part of their whole their whole facade. Wait, so what it do they give a reason for why these people are afraid of opening their eyes? Well, have you seen the world that we <laughs> Did their mom tell them, like, if they stared too long at the sun, they'd go blind? And they, like, took that too seriously. And they're like, God forbid I open my eyes, I'm going to go blind. So I'm just going to adopt life like a blind person. But I refuse to gouge out my eyes. I think that, they I mean, all of this, they say it's stemming from a traumatic incident. But there's another one that's fear of mirrors. And... That was thought that would be a really cool band name, Fear of Mirrors. Fear oh, of I Mirrors. Love it. Mm. Um, so, in that, they thought stemmed from maybe not, um, you know, being ashamed of your body or not wanting to look at yourself for dysmorphia, you know. Yeah. So, it, you know. Yeah, that, I mean, I, once again, I associate that with like more like an underlying issue. And yeah. then they go around telling someone, oh, I have a fear of this. But why do you have a fear of that? There's something like underneath that's going on. Whereas like the reason why your uh, crustacean phobia is so mm-hmm. legit because it's very hard for you to explain it. And like it doesn't make sense. And there's not really an underlying explanation. Whereas for a lot of these things, you can think of like, something underlying that's probably actually going on i'm like thinking about hermit crabs right now and like what you remember when did you ever have them in school like you and i we've talked about this we've had very different schooling experiences (laughs) but did you ever have hermit crabs in your classroom no because i didn't enter the school system until i was like in eighth grade and it was like okay shitty private christian school (laughs) 
well, that may have saved you from gears of this because I like they used to fall out of their shells or like crawl out of their shells. Oh God. If you didn't have like enough different size shells in their cage, they would like they would need to go into a shell. So sometimes they would escape and they'd be walking around the classroom like without their shell. Oh, OK. Oh so like that's yeah, that's kind of maybe that maybe that's what where my phobia stemmed from. But um, I can't stop thinking about it. I think we might have to take a break. Oh, my God. If Just you were kidding. like a Gen Z kid right now, this would be like the big drama of your life. You, would be- I would sue the school. And I'm totally throwing shade. You know, like, uh, you know, the young Gen Z's will be like, I have PTSD and it's, and they'll be completely serious and they'll be like, it's because a crab was walking around my classroom without a shell and it was so disturbing to me. Yeah. No shade to our Gen Z listeners. You are not Zoomers. You are exempt. (laughs) You have been given gold stars from us millennials. Yes. So the next one is gamophobia, which is fear of marriage. Um, but yet people don't really avoid relationships. They just avoid getting close to marriage, which I, I don't, okay, I don't so know. So they have an avoidant attachment style, like mm-hmm. congrats. That's not a phobia. <laughs> Go see a therapist if you want to get better. That's, you know, bingo. Um, so actually now I'm this I'm going to go into some that might be more higher on our scale. Um, somnophobia, which is for fear of falling asleep. And this could point to an underlying sleep disorder or like yeah, a parasomnia, like, like sleep terrors or sleep paralysis. Yeah, you know, and I totally agree that's valid a valid anxiety but once again it's like okay it's just the sleep disorder Mm -hmm. and now they have fear of falling asleep as a result of it it's not like literally a phobia of sleep if their sleep was good I'm sure they'd love sleeping yeah I think the point is what classifies it as a phobia is they will try to stay awake all night like they will go out of their way to avoid it and this points to the is that experience the sleep terror like so the phobia is a result of experiencing the sleep terror so i rated this one a little bit higher on the i thought this was it's more a little bit higher but once again i just think <laughs> a lot of these phobias are just they're turning things that are other disorders into like let's call it a phobia and give it this cool name yeah and uh, be know. clickbait on the on the internet. Yes, um, people can one, identify as having their their phobia. Yeah, and <laughs> since they might not be going out places because they're afraid of going out, maybe they can like connect with other people who have similar experiences, and maybe that that can be like a form of therapy. Oh dear! Maybe. Or they can spiral each other together, which is more likely. <laughs> Let's be real. So this one. Omphalophobia, fear of belly buttons. Um, I don't like to touch my belly button. It kind of like, I don't like to. Um, I rate I that know. highly. I think that's a valid phobia. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought I think so it's too. weird to, to be a phobia. It either has to be like something 
understandable, but the person has like an extreme irrational response to it, or it has to be something like really weird that once again is an irrational fear and it can't be explained by anything else. When I think about someone having a fear of belly buttons, I can't automatically come to like some explanation for it that's better. So that's why I think it's valid. Mine has, my explanation would have something to do with like perinatal something. Like was there a problem with the cord? Was the, did the belly button thing fall off too soon? Like I go back to that. You know, maybe they just like, when they were young, they saw someone with like a really gross belly button and it disturbed them. And now they're like, ooh. Or, you know, I feel like it's, it could be as simple as that, or maybe they found something like gross in their own belly button or like, uh-huh. I don't know. Or like trolls, so, like a bad troll experience. Yeah. Several. I mean, there's, there's possibilities, but I still think there isn't a better way to categorize it. So we'll say it's a phobia. And they can take it a step further to a fear of their inside spilling out of the belly button. Oh dear. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that kind of <laughs> makes it more. We should have got the. We should have got little cards, like, and just held them up, like where we rate them on the phobia scale, but, like judges, like mm-hmm. uh, ice skating. Uh, this one was is another softy. Um, decidophobia or fear of making decisions. And at first I was like, oh, people just don't want to commit. They're, you know, maybe lazy. They don't want to make the decisions. But then again, the phobia part of it is that they don't trust themselves and they rely on external forces like astrology or the stars or other things to help decide fates. Weak. (laughs) I rate it weak. That just sounds like generalized anxiety disorder. Yep. And again, like... I'm always trying to get astrology readings. I'm like, please tell me my life is better and I should continue onwards. Right. And they always say great things, by the way. They've always said that summer. And sometimes that's what you need. Summer 2021, my whole life is changing. And I've been like, you know it, except you don't. But I know that I'm finishing residency then. So I know my life is changing. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like we're not, you know, dismissing these as real things. We're just saying, I think they're miscategorized as phobias and more likely to be something. I'm not going to say that again. I'm tired of hearing myself say that. Yeah, Um, I keep saying the same (laughs) shit too, but we're just really ramming in our ideas. You got to be careful what you say nowadays. So um, (laughs) yeah. And then the the fear of flying is actually interesting because it's almost a combination between, and this means flying in a plane, not like, I don't know why I had to qualify that. Like, duh. Um, it's, it's like a combination between claustrophobia and agoraphobia, which is I thought was interesting. Because um, A, you're in a confined space, and one of the hallmarks of agoraphobia or fear of like public spaces is not being able to get out of the situation. So, yeah. That, I, I sat next to someone with a severe case of that. It was when I was in medical school. And I think I was going to my first year, there was like some medical conference in Las Vegas. You nice. probably remember that one. I don't, I don't think you went though. But anyways, the woman who was sitting next to me 
just, I thought she was like having a seizure or something at first. I was like, oh my God, something is wrong with her physically. But then I realized like she was just having a panic attack because we hit like a little turbulence. And then she like started like almost like screaming and freaking out and was demanding to talk to the pilot and was like asking him if we were going to crash. And I ended up like having to hold her hand and do like breathing exercises with her and like take her mind off of it because she was literally like freaking out so bad and this mind you I was a first year med student but and I was like by the way this is the perfect issue to ask your doctor for some Xanax for for when you fly (laughs) next time like you know instead of taking down the whole plane because your (laughs) fear of flying is so bad you know, maybe just sedate yourself. And like in that situation, what kind of sticks out to me is like rationalization and logic goes out the window. Like, does she really think like the pilot's going to talk to like seat 4C and like, you know, conference about the plane going down? Like what is talking to the pilot pulling him away from the imminent, quote unquote, imminent situation going to do? You know, Right. And I think he actually did. <laughs> come talk to her because aren't there usually like a couple pilots or something or like it's on like manual or not manual Uh, (laughs) like automatic the opposite it's like an automatic half the time but anyways whoever i'm gonna go with that that is a false memory i don't think that the pilot came and talked to her it might have been a false memory like maybe her someone maybe someone pretended to be the pilot was it the marshal like the the, the, I don't the fucking know. Rush. I think you're right, though. The pilot definitely <laughs> didn't come. But maybe I took on some of her, like, trauma, and I rearranged the memory in my mind so that the pilot came and talked to her. Oh, my God. Okay. And then the last one that I'm going to totally debunk because I can, I have personal experience, is um, misophobia or misophobia, which is fear of germs. And they, in multiple places I read, said that this is like concurrent with OCD, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it's not a fear. Mm, This is a tough one. I'm going to like mess this up. It's, it's inherent to having OCD and not, you know, a phobia in and of itself. And this is important because I think you can have a fear of germs and not have OCD because what kind of the difference is, is how you react to that. So I think the, you know, the fear of germs just purely, that might not really exist, but hypothetically, theoretically, if it did, people would go out of their way to avoid germs. They would, you know, the avoidant behavior would be more prominent. And I think with OCD, it's kind of the ritual and the compulsions around the obsession of germs that separates it. So then, I mean, that's why I would say this could exist because as long as someone has a fear of germs and it mostly consists of avoidant behaviors instead of compulsions as a result of the fear, then I think it could be classified as just a phobia. But it definitely, you know, you're more likely going to see the person who is under the OCD umbrella where they have the fear of germs and now they're ritualistically washing their hands like seven times an hour. But there could be exceptions who do just have the phobia. Right. So if you want to 
read more. Um, there's actually a website called fearof.net and it's like all about phobias, um, recovery village and good housekeeping, even though these like, they're mostly blog websites. Um, a lot of them, I mean, I, you can tell they're not, I've seen them kind of in multiple places and I have heard of them in some of my, you know, medical training. So I, (laughs) I think that these are credible, but, um, but yeah, so the, the kind of like ultimate, like tiebreaker, oh geez, tiebreaker. Um, I read an article from verywellmind.com. It was actually written by an MD as well. Would you consider like haunted houses? Is that a fear or a phobia? A fear. It's a fear. Like, but there are some places that say, oh, you can have like a fear of, of haunted houses, but this is kind of what ties this whole podcast together for me. Is this a quote unquote normal fear? Um, is there such thing as a normal fear? Well, yes, you should be afraid of like, you know, um, bears, sharks, like things that are posing an immediate threat, um, which is the point of a haunted house. Um, I'm talking either about like a museum, like a scary ride or like one of those pop-up haunted houses they have during uh, Halloween. Um, And I think to me, going to a haunted house is like thrilling. Like you seek out that, that fight or flight because you know, deep down it's not real, but you're, you know, you can trick your mind like temporarily into being afraid and it's thrilling and it's fun versus a phobia would mean you're changing your whole schedule around. Like, let's say, you know, you're going to a bachelorette party and they are looking at Airbnbs and you decide that you are not going to go because you are afraid that the Airbnb may be haunted. So you avoid any situation that may put you in like a house that is haunted. So that's more, you can have a phobia of haunted houses, but it's a very thin line between what's actually just, you don't like scary shit, which is, which is fine. Yeah. And also the another point was how much thought you give it. Like, do you sit there and like dread Halloween because someone's going to ask you to go to a haunted house or does it come up when the time yeah. comes? Like, hey, no, not really. I don't want to go. So that's kind of, I thought that was like a really good way to put this all together. Do you got, um, do you want to hear like a crazy haunting story? Uh, obviously, obviously I do. This is wild. I was thinking of devoting a whole podcast episode to it. So someone I know, she saw a patient for Zoom therapy today and like a hand came out of the air and like grabbed the patient's screen towards the patient and she thought it was like a family member or something in the room and was confused. But then she was like, who's that? And the patient was like, you saw that too? And she was like, yeah. And this patient went on to explain how the house is totally haunted. And like, she sees like beings crawling and all this crazy shit. And I totally believe that this occurred, number one. And number two, that the house that patient lives in is legitimately haunted. I've never in my life heard something so real and like visual because a lot of people 
they, you know, they think that beings are communicating with them through like lights or different things, but like visual and also the fact that, you know, whatever ghosts or spirits these are do seem to be disturbed and unpleasant. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, this is, this has happened multiple times, like in my very short career is I'll see a patient. It'll usually be for dementia. And, um, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, dad said that he, you know, saw people sitting at the kitchen table one night at like 2 AM, like clearly he's hallucinating or like he, you know, he, the voices, I don't know, but like, he'll say, he'll be like, no, I actually, I, I did see that. It was like, a sh- it was there and then it was gone. And I have had also a couple of patients who are like mediums and they're like, oh, you know, this is just, it's very distracting. I can't focus because spirit is talking to me. And I am going to say this again, very cautiously, but at what point, you know, professionally do you, you know, you, in my practice, I just say, okay, nope, that's, you said that I'm taking you, I'm taking your word for it. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. And then are there providers that are like, what? No, I don't, because I don't believe that I'm going to yeah. send you to get evaluated for this because that's not something I believe to be real. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the person who often doesn't, isn't like, you have to be open-minded. If you're not open-minded, then there's an issue with you. You can be open-minded and listen to someone's story and be like, uh, I think, you know, their reality might be different than someone else's, right? But how I they do perceive think, something. Yeah. But I do think that these things happen and to just completely write it off like that's your issue, especially, you know, if you now think someone needs a psych eval because perhaps, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, their third eye is open. Right. Or they're, they're distressed because they're picking up on a vibe. They're an empath. They're, you know, yeah. it's, you, they're so, you, we can get into a whole episode on this, but like, yeah, they don't teach you that in med school. Like, well, they what, don't teach you, you like, you know, they teach you like two things in med school and everything else. Like it's either like ingrained in you as a person or you seek it out on your own. Right. I, that was a cool segue. I'm glad we, mm-hmm. we got that in. So I just also wanted to just talk about how debilitating life can be. And this is a quote that I, I, I wrote this down myself. Um, the, the quality of life is inversely proportional to how commonly somebody encounters the object of their phobia. So snakes, uh, you know, unless you live in Australia probably not going to be something that you have to worry about going out of your way to avoid versus this is an example a metaphobia which is a uh, a fear of emesis or vomiting you can't a control that and b it happens to everyone at any time so people will avoid restaurants and public places or just not leave their house for fear that it can literally happen and i've known patients with that specific phobia yeah. And even if they haven't thrown up in years, like they just have an mm-hmm. iron stomach and there's no, you know, basis of this. Um, I was reading on a, I guess it's a blog site, uh, yesandyes.org. Uh, this one writer, our author, Michelle, didn't give her last name. She was talking about how she was prescribed um, 
anti-emetics and she took it three times a day to avoid vomiting, even though she hadn't thrown up in like 20 years. So like that's a hard, that's kind of, I don't want to say harmful, but it's it's not good. Um, And, you know, she really speaks to having uh, supportive friends who would just meet her halfway, you know, come to her house and just not question it. Um, And then on mind.org, there was a article about uh, somebody with fear of bananas. um, And he tried to cope with it by making light of it. He would call like he would call it banana drama um, and, you know, try to like people would have to try to eat his food first. Like if they were at like a a luncheon and there were cakes, like somebody would have to take a bite of it um, because if he bit into a banana, he would, um, you know, like vomit, pass out, like have a full-blown panic attack. Um, And basically the interesting point of that piece was how do you tell somebody? Do you like first time you meet someone lead with it to like avoid ever having them in that situation? Or do you just wait until you encounter a banana? So I just thought that was, that was interesting that these people also have to think of um, to, you know, function socially, how you're going to bring up your, your phobia. So, yeah. And that's definitely like, you know, if you need people to chase things to make sure there's not banana in it, that's pretty severe. Yeah. And, and I thought like, you know, this one, this person's trying, like they're trying to, you know, enjoy things in life and, um, you know, and to have that supportive, supportive friends and colleagues who want you to also enjoy things and do that for you. So, yeah. So, um, so that's, you know, what I got. Um, what, how, how would one go about seeking treatment or what options are available for, these debilitating phobias. Yeah. So you've sort of already hinted at some things like for someone who's afraid of snakes and doesn't live in Australia, no matter how severe your phobia is, it probably doesn't require treatment. The things that tend to require treatment are things like agoraphobia, which is essentially, you know, being in public around people. Um, Some people have fears of driving, like a severe, like, driving phobia, uh, you know, usually related to getting into an accident or, you know, uh, dangerous things that could potentially arise or frightening situations. So those are more the times that it would be treated when it's going to directly negatively impact someone's life and they're really not going to be able to exist as, like, a healthy functioning adult in human society without seeking treatment. And then something occurs, a type of therapy called exposure therapy, but really it could also be framed as habituation therapy. So Mm. essentially sometimes it starts with like imagining with the therapist, like the situation or like playing it out with them. And then until that, ends up being less disturbing and then once they're doing well with like practice in the imaginary setting being directly exposed to the phobia slowly either alone or with the support of their therapist physically there with them um and it has like a really really good success rate I think that almost everybody who It's one of the, like, anxiety disorders in general, but especially, like, if someone really did have some type of phobia that they need, like, habituation for, um, 
that would be a great thing. A big thing I think too is really the the germ phobia thing. Perhaps someone is goes around with gloves all the time and they're afraid to touch anything because they're going to get contaminated. So these phobias that might, yes, morph into uh, be an OCD picture, they still might end up needing like exposure therapy for the phobia aspect of it just because even when they're maxed out on like medications like their SSRI or whatever, it's still severely impacting their ability to like exist in society. Right. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, you're breaking down skin. Like usually you hear of patients with like the raw knuckles from washing their hands so much. Yeah. You're predisposing to infection. You're, you know, it's kind of the opposite. It's their fear kind of their phobia and what they're doing about it is actually causing the actual thing that they're afraid of, which is infection because the skin's a barrier and your hands are dirty. So yeah. it's interesting. I mean, not exactly the same, but it, my mom is like a very anxious, f- maybe phobic or maybe OCD type person. <laughs> and like one of many stupid things she's done recently is she was like flossing so extensively that she like destroyed her gums and had Mm. to get a gum graft i'm not oh my god so like she's tons of like neurotic like sort of compulsive behaviors that just like go way too far and then she like hurts herself so yeah just share i'm just sharing random things that come to mind today so thank you so much yeah no problem um i I learned a lot and it was fun. Yeah, I, I, I really want, I was so excited to do this episode. It wasn't what I planned, but that was a stupid thing, but it was, it was, it was a lot. Um, I thought it had a little bit of everything. Yes, it definitely did. And it's always the best choice if when you're, as your co-host, I know that if you're researching for something or you start with some type of plan and you stick to that, too much you will often uh produce something you're not as happy with instead of just like going with the flow and deciding it's going to be better this way or that way in case you wondered what it was like for us there's lots of effort that goes into podcasting seriously yeah a lot (laughs) of like those string boards with like you know frantically pictures and diagrams yes we are the guy in that meme that's charlie from Always Sunny. Uh, Always Sunny. Yeah. That's us with every episode. So, (laughs) anyways, thank you for this consult.